after having marked hymn number 17 that we'll use as a song of encouragement a bit later in the lesson, later in their service this morning. Again, let us say how appreciative we are of the presence of each and every one today. And perhaps just an initial note of statement, if I might, on a personal privilege aspect. Let uh, my family and I wish again to thank each one for coming and making the day as it was yesterday. Certainly without your attendance, it wouldn't have been nearly as enjoyable as it was. We hope that each one found the time an enjoyable time of fellowship and communion one with another. I would on one note like to ask, as you paid attention to the pictures that somewhat scrolled by, we do need to thank Brother Ralph Mayberry for them, for he took those pictures and kindly made them available to us, so wish to express a note of appreciation to him. And on one other note, a pair of sunglasses needs to, if you took a pair that you later discovered was not yours, uh, we have found someone who, who has somehow exchanged sunglasses, and I think the brand name corresponding to them is the Baby Fat brand of sunglasses. So if you find that you have that pair and it's not the ones that was yours, please uh, kindly see Denise or myself, and we'll, we'll be happy to exchange those with you. The power of influence. Interestingly enough, we had touched briefly upon an aspect of that in the Bible study class this morning. I would invite us to proceed on a journey here from the Sermon on the Mount, beginning in Matthew 5, 13 to 16, in which we have many powerful thoughts from the mouth of our Savior himself. The significance of influence. Isn't it a fascinating thing to behold that you and I are aware that influence takes on many dramatic and vivid impacts. For instance, parents influence their children. On the other hand, children can exert significant influence on their parents. Co-workers, friends, acquaintances, and associates influence others who are watching and observing them. And isn't it true that those who are married impact and influence each other as the years go by, as they learn to appreciate, cherish, and love one another? Often the influence they exert has dramatic impact even on each other. We need not be reminded of how great influence is. We know it exists, and no doubt our parents more than once reminded us when we were young and still maturing that others are watching. They pay attention. They are aware of what you do and what you say, where you go, and even the things you leave undone. Today, might we understand, even Jesus said something like that. And it was the very crux of the lesson text that we had read just a few moments ago. What might be said about influence more carefully, and perhaps more specifically, what about those that are Christians? What does the Lord demand of us as we strive to set forth an example pleasing in His sight? Let's begin with a definition or two, understanding more thoroughly what influence is all about, and only then shall we march forward in the lesson text and appreciate somewhat more powerfully the idea that we yet need to learn. By influence, we simply mean the following by definition. That I act or power of producing an effect without apparent exertion or a force or direct exercise of command. Might we notice in that very definition that's stated, the simple fact that as others appreciate, observe, and watch, you and I need not often directly command or say anything but by the example of life, by the thrust of what takes place, they observe and learn the kind of person that we are. They either find that person a very positive one and one with whom they may be interested in imitating, or they may find it a person 
who has a negative disposition and perhaps is even worthy of avoiding that kind of influence or power. It is a fair thing to notice then that there is a rather large spectrum involved in influence. Though we shall ask the question again later, it wouldn't hurt to even begin the lesson by asking it. What might be said about your influence and mine? Is it one that as others watch, they would tend to imitate and follow us with the resultant goal of being a better person than what they currently are? Or on the other hand, if they were to imitate you or me, would they find themselves no better than what they are in the sense of influencing others for positive, for good, for nobility, for righteousness? It's a sobering thought and a rather sobering question, isn't it? As I've listed some of the thoughts on that screen, what does the Bible have to say about it? We began a moment ago by noting there is this positive influence. A person who so conducts his or her life that they exude a moral, ethical, positive stance and others come to appreciate that by virtue of the way that he or she lives. The Bible endorses that wholeheartedly. Let's begin in Proverbs 22.1. A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches, and loving favor rather than silver and gold. As the first part of that verse, again written by the wisest human ever to have lived, the man named Solomon, a good name is rather to be chosen than great riches. There is a goodness associated with a name if that name is so lived in the way that one would desire. We each are well aware that by the way a person conducts his or her life, that name comes to be associated with the kind of person that that individual is. Is that person honest, trustworthy, dependable, reliable, respectful? Then that name carries with it ideas like that. But on the other hand, does that person have a name that seems to connote dishonesty, taking advantage of others, disrespect, flying off the handle in a temper tantrum. You see, our name means a great deal, and no doubt as soon as that name is mentioned, others have a mental image and impression that immediately characterizes in their mind what we are to them. The Bible had begun by saying a good name. Is your name good? Do others, when they hear your name, appreciate the former and not the latter? Another text that's worthy of thought comes in the form of an example. Few examples perhaps in the Old Testament would rise higher than that of Josiah in 2 Chronicles chapters 34 and 35. Young people, you might wish to take note. Josiah was the tender age of eight when we have the first mention in the Bible of him. Though he was so young in terms of years, and might we notice that he did not have much going for him in regard to his parents. His father was an ungodly idolater, and his grandfather was just like him. But yet we find in Josiah a man, a young boy with a tender heart, who had a desire to learn the way of God and follow it. Not only did he influence himself, he came to be king of Judah and influenced a whole nation to do what was right. You see, his father and grandfather had been such that in their days of ruling, they had marched a kingdom toward destruction, and God would have destroyed it, no doubt, earlier than he did. But the very kind way of Josiah, the godly disposition with which he reigned, turned the kingdom around, and they lasted many more years. The influence of Josiah. 
perhaps we would do well to look at the other side of that coin. Not only is it such that an influence might be so noble, positive, and good, but we well know it can also be negative, unwholesome, and rather tragic. I've listed some other passages for you to consider there. The Bible condemns such influences as this. As far back as the days of the law of Moses, what was it that God through Moses had said to the children of Israel in Deuteronomy 18.9? On that occasion, God has specifically forewarned them, you shall not do as the nations in which you are about to go. When thou comest into the land when I shall bring thee unto, thou shalt not do after the abominations of them. What was the point that God was making? They will influence you if you allow it to happen. You will follow after those idolaters and abominable ways, and I will punish you for it. God forewarned them. Examples around them would be bad. However, the children of Israel, by maintaining devotion and dedication to what Moses had revealed through the power of God, they would avoid those difficulties and follow the way of goodness. Perhaps other examples can be noted. Is it not amazing to remember that even in the Old Testament in Proverbs 29:15, as well as that example of Genesis 3 verse 6, Examples all the while perhaps remind us that evil communications corrupt good manners. The statement that's therein made in the King James translation is read this way in the American Standard, evil companionships. What is Paul's warning? Influences for bad will impact you if you're not awfully careful. Those in Corinth had to be aware of that. Corinth was known as a very wicked, licentious city, and that church was striving to be holy and godly in the midst of that kind of environment. And God, through Paul, warned them, evil associations corrupt good manners. May you and I still fully recollect and remember that lesson today. Having said those matters, the second time we may now ask the question, what can be said about your influence and what can be said about mine? That's a personal question. No one can answer it for you, nor can anyone answer it for me. And I think we each know the answer. Is our influence what it ought to be? Is it rise as high and as powerful as it could? Or have we, due to our laziness, due to our lack of devotion, to our lack of dedication, allowed it to fall far lower than what it really ought to be? Jesus will have something to say about this. With those as introductory thoughts, let us turn to the text that Brother Jeff read earlier. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, we had looked a few Sundays ago at verses 3 on to verse 12. We had devoted some attention to those Beatitudes and looked at them three at a time, coming to appreciate the thoroughness and power with which the Savior had begun His preaching ministry. Notice now in verse 13, Jesus does again that which he had done before, in essence, pointing out so directly and so powerfully what is so practical. It is a major mistake through the centuries that some have believed that the Bible is theoretical. It sets forth things on a lofty and high plane that often are difficult to apply. In most instances, that is not true. The Bible has words in it meant to be applied. And it is an affront to God to claim that He's filled His Word with things that you and I cannot sufficiently make application of in our life. 
Let's revisit verse 13. Ye are the salt of the earth. But if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. Jesus, after concluding the Beatitudes, directly now uses that word you. He does not say somebody, someone, some group. With an eye that is very piercing, he looks at you and me and says, You are the salt of the earth. That means me, and it means you. He does not leave any of us out, those who are striving to follow him. He's speaking to his disciples, those interested in learning of his way, and says, You are the salt of the earth. We understand what salt accomplishes. It accomplishes taste and desirability in the food that we eat. We now live in an age and in a time when the days of a salt shaker is not maybe as prevalent on the table as it once was because now our food already has so much salt in it by virtue of the way it's manufactured. But we might remember a day when we ate at our grandparents and the food when it was originally cooked didn't have much salt in it. And we'd have to add a little on our own at the table. It added desirability and taste. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. He didn't stop there, however. Understanding then that in terms of earth and the totality of the globe on which we walk, the Christian adds a desirability and a taste unable to be found any other way. We understand certainly well that Satan is the god of this world and he certainly does not add taste or desirability in the form of heaven. In fact, it is his desire to drive men further from God as far as he can drive them. But isn't it a sobering thought, speaking of influence, when Jesus says, if the salt have lost his savor, what was the Savior saying? If you are the salt of the earth, noting the word salt, if now that salt has lost its savor, and the word savor simply means taste in Greek, so if the salt has lost its taste, what's it good for? Perhaps you and I again can remember when that salt shaker was on the table, if enough time elapsed and it was unused, it would cake up and dry. Perhaps at that point, you might see it taken out to the back porch and thrown out into the yard. There was no way to recover the saltiness of the salt once that had happened. Jesus similarly here says, It is thenceforth good for nothing to be cast out trodden underfoot of men. Isn't it easy to see how that relates to influence? For that's the subject that our Savior's presenting. You and I, as a salt of the earth, if we thus so conduct ourselves, such that we tarnish that salt, we bring it to a lack of saltiness, we reduce its taste because we live in a way we ought not. What's it good for then? Can you recover the saltiness? Can you recover the original impression that it would give? No, you can't. Isn't it so in our life? When you and I thus act foolishly, we do things we really shouldn't be doing. We say things we ought not say. We thus bring an impression in the mind of those that have watched. Well, he or she said that they were a Christian. They attend services, but they surely don't live like it. Notice how much harm and how much damage that does. That influence that you once had is forever gone in the mind of that person. Oh, it's true, you can be forgiven of that mistake and that sin you've made. God will forgive and that He has promised. But can you ever remove the impression that's been made in the mind of that person?
most likely that answer is no. They'll never forget what they saw you do, what they heard you say. They'll never forget where they saw you going, perhaps those whom they saw you with. It's a very powerful episode to consider thus how we must ever be on guard for our influence is dramatic and powerful and others are watching. Perhaps more could be said about that too. Could we apply it to dancing? We understand the scriptures condemn dancing. But we also understand society wholeheartedly encourages it and endorses it. Songs are written and as folks walk onto the dance floor, they claim it's exercise or they claim it's vitality and aerobic activity. Well, it's more than that. It's sinful. Isn't Satan a master at portraying that which is wrong in a way that seems so appealing? In Galatians 5 verses 19 through 21, we have a record of various things that the inspired God of heaven, of course, says will never enter heaven. They that do such things shall never enter the kingdom of God. He begins that list by saying, Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these? Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness. May we pause at the fourth one. Lasciviousness, what is that? Behavior, conduct, activity, whereby sordid things enter the mind. May we ask, when a young man and a young woman are on that dance floor and holding hands and their bodies are gyrating and moving, one cannot expect to think that the thoughts, at least, of the hormonal activity of life aren't raging wildly, and the things that take place thus are lascivious by nature, by the very character of the activity taking place. That matter alone leads us to ask, what about influence? The following story was relayed to me many years ago, and I've never forgotten it. A young man and a young woman were on a dance floor, and the young woman claimed to be a Christian. At one time, during the topic of the dance, the subject of religion came up, and she made the statement to him that, I am a Christian. And perhaps we must give him credit when he asked, well, then why are you on this dance floor? Even he knew enough to know that something isn't right about this activity given what you claim to be. What about my influence and yours in that regard? May we keep ourselves pure as Paul encouraged Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.22. But may we ask, do we not live in a world that is overwhelmed and inundated with various drug activities? And I include alcohol in that, for alcohol is a drug. We understand that not only is it prescription drugs, it's non-prescription ones, and it runs rampant. All we need to do is look at the daily news and listen to another lab that's been called the abuse of various kinds of drugs. We may note that others around us may encourage it, but we must be sober. That word is used in the New Testament does not only mean free from alcoholic beverage. It means sound mind and clear in thought. Any drug will seek to reduce that. May we be wiser than that and not tarnish our influence because others are going to watch and they know exactly what we've done and what we're doing. To say all of that is to say, what about my influence again and what about yours? Are you and I thus the salt of the earth as we ought to be? Are we that leavening agent that causes others to appreciate the nobility of God's word and the straight path that leads to glory, Matthew Chapter 7, verse 13. But that isn't all the Savior said. Notice in verse number 14, he goes on to say this. 
Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Ye are the light of the world. Light is something that shows illumination and direction and proper guidance. It shows the proper way. I know last night after the activities had finished at the house and we were looking around, of course it got dark pretty quickly. It was no longer such that you could easily see. To ride around that track in the field then without light would have been dangerous. Notice that light, though, provides guidance. It allows the opportunity to see the way, the proper direction to travel, and in so doing to arrive at the correct destination. It's an amazing thing, though, what Jesus notes. For if the Christian, that disciple, is one who is in fact the light of the world, the world is groping in darkness, and Satan ever loves to have it so. He is in fact the God of this world. He is in fact the very one who inhabits the world of darkness. He doesn't want men to come to the truth. He doesn't want anyone to even know the truth. Jesus, though, here says, you are the light of the world. Do you and I think of ourselves in that way as often as we should? Tomorrow, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, you and I thus are the light of the world. Do others around us see the glorious destination of glory ahead by virtue of the life that we live? They should. They ought to. In light of those points, notice what Jesus thus points out. If you and I don't show the pathway to morality and ethical character and proper behavior, who else will? The world will not display that. The world will not show that forth. But doesn't that then turn the question around? What if you or I Though disciples, Christians, if you will, are such that we obscure that light. Perhaps we cover it. What is that saying? Sometimes our young people sing a song, This little Christian light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. There comes a time in that song when we notice we won't let Satan blow it out. We won't cover it up with a bushel. Here's the very text where Jesus makes that very statement. Verse number 15. Neither do men light a candle, and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Is everyone seeing the light of your Christian life and mine? Or are we obscuring it, covering it when it's convenient to do so, at least in our mind? How tragic, how sad. For is it not true that if we don't let our light shine, how else will they ever see the light? Satan won't show it to them. We understand fully well that hell is full of demons and they will never illustrate the light of God's goodness. To show forth that light is up to us. We are the salt of the earth. We're like a city set on a hill. A city on a hill is easily visible from a far distance for it sets there in strength and boldness. So too that light illuminates every corner of the house and shows forth everything in need of work, in need of correction. May we be quick thus to let that light shine forth so that others can see a positive, noble, and powerful influence for good. The fact of this verse then leads us to see, what if I thus again fail? I do something I ought not do. Others are well aware of it. It is such that I allow myself to be found doing that which is very, very tarnishing to a Christian reputation. What can now be said? Can I obtain forgiveness for that? Absolutely. The blood of Christ will cleanse all sin. 1 John 2 verse 2. 
But next question, what about the impression made in the minds of those who watched me, who perhaps were my companions in the act? Will they thus look upon me the same? Again, quite likely, that which has been done will leave a lasting impression in their mind. And our influence is that meaningful. Jesus says you'd better be cautious and you'd better be careful. Can we not think of some other examples? What about our language? The study of language has always been a fascinating thing to me. For tongue, our tongue is so powerful. James at length discussed it in James chapter 3, didn't he? It is like fire. It is a world of iniquity. But notice what else the Bible says about that tongue. I've listed this. What then do others perceive when they hear us happily going along with that which is filthy, that which is unwholesome? They naturally think, even if we're not telling it, if we're standing there laughing at it, we're just as guilty. What else could be affirmed? What if we slanderously speak of others behind their back? Notice when others hear us, they know what we're saying is no more than gossip and it ought not to be said. They are thus aware that we behind their back are tearing someone else's reputation to shreds and enjoying every minute of it. Such things ought not be. What was it James said? Out of the same spring doesn't come sweet water and bitter. May the spring of my mouth and yours always show forth sweet water, not be filled with brackish, bitter water that's unwholesome and unfit. But what's more, what about our language that can be ever so disrespectful, perhaps of authorities? In the book of Jude, we might remember that when there was contention over the body of Moses, what was it that was said, in fact? The devil desirous of that, Moses, did not bring a railing accusation against him. Perhaps we might have thought face to face with the devil, shouldn't Moses have blasphemed him, called him names, and in fact asserted the greatness of his unwholesomeness, and yet Moses did not. All he said was, the Lord rebuked thee. May we be cautious with our language in which we condemn others, speak of them in a slanderous way, tear them apart. For you see, ultimately vengeance rests with God, doesn't it? Romans 12, verses 20 and 21. The thought of these matters leads us to notice a host of verses. I mentioned about that character of perhaps responding in a slanderous and hurtful and very disrespectful way. What did Solomon say? A soft answer turneth away wrath, but a grievous answer stirreth up anger. Quite often that which is said in and of itself may be entirely appropriate, but it's the way that we say it. We have harshness in our tone. We have perhaps very difficulty in terms of bringing forth the words and we're defensive about the way they're spoken. All that does is stir up anger. When we could have said the same thing with softness, the same thing with tactfulness, and the final result would have been a full, fully different thing. May we seek to use soft answers when we can. In light of those matters, what about Ephesians 5.11? We remember there the stern command given to us, have no association with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. In our desire to have a positive influence, might we remember the unfruitful works of darkness will obscure our light if we allow it. The sobering thought of that takes us to the last two examples. 
in Matthew 7 verse 12, the golden text of the Bible, as it's sometimes called, the golden rule in other ways. We remember it simply says, Therefore all things whatsoever ye would that men should do unto you, do ye even so unto them, for this is the law and the prophets. Do you and I enjoy it when others speak slanderously of us? Do we enjoy it when they speak disrespectfully to us? If we don't, then we shouldn't do it to them. One example of the Old Testament bears this out powerfully. It was the days of Nabal and Abigail together with David. On one occasion, we remember that David came to Nabal and desired some things to support his troops, food and other matters like that. The time came, however, that Nabal responded harshly and roughly to David. Had he been kind? Had he been, in fact, different in disposition? David may have thought nothing of it. But due to his gruffness, harshness, the difficulty with which he answered David so roughly, David was ready to bring his troops and destroy that man and all he had. Finally, Nabal's wife, though, in a, in a great idea of sense, came and basically apologized for Nabal to David and helped smooth that over. May you and I use soft answers just like she did when we can. Perhaps finally might we notice one last thing that Jesus affirmed. Verses 14 and 15 again make reference to the following. Light of the world, city set on a hill. But as we contemplate these, we understand a candle is not to be hidden. A city on a hill you simply cannot obscure. As you and I ponder that just a moment, that does then ask again about influence. Are you and I covering our light? Are we so conducting ourselves in a way that it makes it appear that we really are not what we claim to be? Perhaps no finer application of that at all could be seen than in what a person chooses to wear. What we wear is by and large our choice, isn't it? Now when we're younger, our parents have dramatic influence on that. But we live in an age and in a culture in which the warning needs to be almost constant, doesn't it? Young ladies, and young men alike for that matter, do you choose to wear things that expose the private parts of your body? And I ask that because I see it so often, even in town as you walk through malls and as you walk through places, are things seen that ought not be seen? My friend, might you consider then, if you're doing that, you're covering your candle. You're hiding the city on the hill. When others look at you, they don't see the body of a person who is striving to bring glory to God. They're seeing the body of a person who's living like a child of the devil. For you see, that's what the world encourages. Sexuality, and the more of it, the better. But sexuality is to be housed within the confines of marriage and nowhere else. Another boy doesn't need to look at your body, little girl, and see in that something to ogle over, to be lewd over, to desire in a lustful way. And young men, the same can be said. Don't proceed around without wearing a shirt. For the same thoughts that she might arouse in you, you arouse in her and you're no better than she. You see, shirtless boys ought not be seen out in public. That, again, is not an appropriate thing. The thought about all of that leads us to say, not only could the shirt be considered, the top needs to be of certainly high enough, but what about the low section of the shirt? That could be high enough to where basically, again, most all things are open and revealed, and that is just as bad. 
the private parts of the body are for your husband or for your wife, whatever the case may be, and nobody else. Clothing today isn't made by and large to make sure that that's the case. So often it, to say the least, is compromising, if not plainly revealing of all things. But not only that, what about the shorts, the bottom, the pants that we may choose to wear? It's also possible they can be too high. Again, leaving nothing to the mind to ponder what it is that's supposedly concealed when in fact it isn't. We must be exceedingly cautious to not wear that which will lead to thoughts impure in the mind of others. We do have responsibility in that way. On one occasion, Paul, truly in regard to meat, said, I will eat no meat if it cause my brother to sin. If our clothing... Though you and I are at liberty to wear it, if we're using that in such a way to cover our light, we are in sin. We're living in a way that more is in accordance to the world and not God. You see a city on a hill, salt of the earth, a light of the world, ought not be conducting and living in a way that encourages the evil thoughts in the minds of others. Understanding that the temptation in our world is so often to wear that which is compromising, we must be ever diligent to appreciate that the purity and the wholesomeness and the goodness associated with God's way is by far the better, though Satan will try to encourage opposite thoughts. Our companions and our friends, if it is such that they will not befriend us if we wear that, then they are not our friend to start with. We need to influence them for good, not them influence us for evil, us for bad. In 1 Peter 1 verse 16, God, speaking through Peter, said, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Do you consider it holy attire to wear that which is far too revealing? Well, of course not. We read in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20, the fact that you and I are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Do you suppose it right for the Holy Spirit to wear about doing things that encourages evil in the mind and in the heart of others? Jesus said, if a man look on a woman to lust after her, he hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Matthew 5, verses 27 and 28. Now, as I mentioned, young men, that goes the other way too. Don't so wear that attire, those garments that will lead to the lustful thoughts in the eyes of, of a female. May we ever be on guard and to watch our Christian influence even with what we wear. Perhaps in closing, verse 16, Jesus summarized it all, the entirety of our lesson today in one verse. That verse still reads, Let your light so shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. That is the finest statement, it seems to me, anywhere in the Bible on influence. Others see your good works, and by that observation, what do they do? Glorify God which is in heaven. That's the hallmark of a positive influence, isn't it? That's not an influence to do evil, having worn clothing that leads to lewd and licentious thoughts. That's not language that has led to filthy communication. That's not the other matters concerning the behavior that we discussed earlier. The Lord had mentioned your light. Are you covering your light today? Or are you letting it shine brilliantly and brightly? Are you proudly able to display and let others observe your life, ever feeling that the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1 will be appropriate for you? Paul was so confident of his way in life, he said, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. 
May you and I so live that we could say the same, encouraging others to follow us, to imitate us, to be like us to the extent that we are imitating God. Today, as we close this lesson by way of summary, we have looked at the power of influence. May we never forget that as Christians, we're the salt of the earth. We're the light of the world. We're a city on a hill. We're a candle that ought not be covered. And the final question, ask it one more time. What about your influence and what about mine? If you have never become a Christian today, be the day to begin that journey, setting forth from henceforth until the day now of your death a positive influence for Christ who died for you. If we could aid you in your becoming of a Christian today, you need to believe Jesus to be the Son of God, repent of your sins, confess Him as the Son of God, and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. If we could assist you in that, what a grand day for you it would be. If, on the other hand, you have become a Christian, but you've allowed the power of influence to be so marred and so tarnished by your life, others perhaps can barely even tell that you were once even a child of God. Make a change today. Make a change now. If you would, while together we stand and while we sing.